Uh, big day ahead of us. Uh, this is the day of the year that we call Vision Sunday. So just give you a quick roadmap of where we're going um, for the rest of the service. I'm going to give a vision, an overview of where we believe God is leading us uh, this next year. And then when that's done, we're going to jump into chapter 2 of the book of James and open up the word uh, of the Lord. Um, if our visions ever trump what God's word says, we're in trouble. Um, and so we're expectant um, that he is going to lead us forward regarding this vision. But we also want to say um, that it, we don't want to presume, right? So we, we plan and we, we come up with plans and strategies and we believe the Spirit has led us. Uh, and we're really excited, as you'll see here shortly, about all the things. Um, but we want to be a dependent people, never, never being um, presumptuous. Um, so we're going to follow the Lord's leading in all this. Um, and we pray that this will all be to his honor and his glory. Now, uh, how, how great was that new song that we just sang? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for this house, this church, we will serve the Lord. Now, we have said it often. It's the truth of who we are that we are learning to live into, and it's this. The church is family. We are family. And as any healthy family does... You cultivate that family. You, you build for family. You build up that family. And we believe that the church is not just a gathering of individual families that happen to assemble, but that we actually are family because of the work, because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this church family is made by the grace of God's presence with us, and we inhabit a particular place in a particular time, don't we? And we're embodied beings. We, we live in a place at a specific time in history. God gives us zip codes. He gives us addresses. He gives us a date stamp, so to speak. So just as a family has a house that serves as a home, as a place to grow together, as a context for love and commitment, we as a church have a place to grow together in the love that God has graciously given us. 4455 Del Val is that hope-filled and history-rich place that we gather for so many things. And we all know this. If you don't know this, this is a really important um, thing to understand. That the church is not just a location, right? The church is a spirit-empowered people. It is, it is the people of God. But the church as a meaningful place in which we meet, right? That facilitates so much of our shared experience in life. And this particular place is a gift to us. On this plot of land, there used to be a farm, you know. And there used to be a chicken coop over here. There were walnut trees all around. There was, there was a farmhouse over here. And here on this plot of soil where there was once a chicken coop and farmhouse and walnut trees, lives have been radically Change and destinies eternally altered. It has been on this plot of ground as it is in heaven. God's will has been done. People have been loved. The word of God has been proclaimed. We've encouraged one another, celebrated, shed tears with each other. Laughter has rung out within the walls of the sanctuary. We have shed tears over the deaths of loved ones here in the sanctuary, haven't we? Just countless funerals held here, countless 
Weddings and dedications held here. Friendships planted in this very soil. This is not some factory. This is not some corporate headquarters. This is a hearth and a home. A foretaste of what it will mean to be the people of God living in his presence in a renewed creation. That will be our eternal home. This physical stuff Uh, This embodied reality, it all matters. It speaks about the truth and love of who God is. God created the world and made all the stuff, and he said what? It is good, right? It's good. It is good. It is good. It is good. And then he says image bearers into that world to cultivate it, to partner with him in its flourishing. Every one of us is called to cultivate the plot of land that God has given us. Every one of us is called to garden the soil that he has set us upon. And that plot of land is, it's your life. It's your family. It's your sphere of influence. It's your home. It's the literal soil that you have been given, the space that you own or rent. And you are called to beautify it, to bring order out of chaos. And we as a church family here in the VCC are to cultivate this land and this space that he has given us to rearrange the raw materials, so to speak, for, for total flourishing, to draw out the potential that is, is here, to bring order to bless this church family as well as the city, right, and as well as the region that we are in. And so this year we will uh, be working to continue to cultivate a familial place, a nurturing space, a culture where uh, apprentices of Jesus are made, matured, and multiplied in a family environment. And so with this vision in our hearts, with the present growth of our children's ministries, high school and, and middle school and disability ministries, that alongside our outdated facilities for those ministries, we are putting together efforts to do what we are calling building for family. So by God's grace, we will be optimizing our campus by building a new children's and disability wing revamping the students' ministry area, breathing life into the front office area, and designing a welcoming gathering place outside that better facilitates our family gatherings. So uh, with that said, let's get into the details of this a little bit, as much as I can in the time that that I have today. Uh, First, let's know where we are. Um, Our campus has had a build-out plan of four phases. The first and second phase were the fellowship hall, over there, where the, where the youth meet, where the offices are. That was phase one and two. Phase three was this building that was built just a little over 20 years ago now. Um, yeah, so just over 20 years ago now. And then, at the time that, that this building was being prepared, there was a fourth phase. That fourth phase was to get rid of the portable buildings, right, and create a, a children's ministry building. You can see it up there um, on the diagram. That uh, sketch was drawn many, many years ago. And that's where we are now. So we're actually entering into uh, a bit of our history that looks forward on the horizon to care for our kids. And now that's the phase we are in, phase four of the overall campus build-out. So what are we going to do? What does this look like? What is this phase four actually going to be? Well, this phase four that we're entering into um, has two phases of its own. And I want to just walk through those so you have an understanding of, of where we're going. Okay, two phases. Um, the first phase is broken up into two parts. It is the new children's and disability building, which will be on the north side of campus right behind the sanctuary. 
And then attached to that will be the renewed, beautiful gathering place, which is over here on the east side. So those two go together. And then the next part of it will be um, 2A and 2B. That's the renewed student center. And then the renewed office updates. So that's how it's broken out into these two big chunks. And each one has two phases so we can do the build out in a healthy way for everyone on campus. So let's now zoom in and look a little bit closer at each one of those. You with me so far? Does that make sense? Okay, good. Um, The new Children's and Disability Building. This will be a 4,800 square foot building. Again, just directly behind or rather in front of the way you're looking right now on that grassy area, taking up just a little bit of that parking space because we have plenty of parking. There will be at the corner of the L of that building, you can, kind of, you can see a rendering of it there. There will be an indoor check-in and a welcome uh, to securely drop off kids to be that central and safe place for drop-off to make things more intuitive for people as they're coming in. If you've ever gone to a, a new church with, with your kids and they're pulling on you every which way, you appreciate good signage and, and flow, all of those things. We want to take care of those families as they come in and create a place that's, that's easy for them to enter into and drop their kids off in a really safe environment. There will be dedicated ADA-compliant restrooms in the building so our kids don't have to traverse you know, from one building to the next to go to the bathrooms over here that are outside in the gathering place. That's a big deal, actually, for, for safety requirements. There will be upgraded playgrounds, which we'll, we'll talk about. Um, and there will be secure perimeter fencing for child safety, um, which, which will be aesthetically pleasing, so it won't look weird, but it'll be really safe um, because think how important this is for our disability ministry and for young kids, right? So we want to make sure that we have um, this safety uh, fencing all the way around. You can see um, a little bit how the, the building just matches our current building, so um, it all integrates beautifully. But let's go to the next slide, the layout slide. Um, we're not going to spend a ton of time on this. Uh, you will have the, the time, uh, the ability to come to some meetings where we'll dig into this. But you can see here um, that there's going to be four large classrooms. There's the check-in center at the L of the building there. Um, there's the children's ministry offices will be back there as well. Of course, the bathrooms, storage, and a maintenance area will all be found in that new building. You can see a couple of things there. Uh, disability sensory area to care for those with disabilities. And you can see some of the, the possible layouts that um, our children's and disability ministry have been picking out so we can put those into place. Now, this leads us to um, the outside Um, By the disability uh, room over there, um, there will be on the outside of that to the east uh, a small garden area um, for for calming, for for outside activities. And then right in the center there is where all the playgrounds are going to be, so they're nestled right in. They're cradled within all the buildings, so there's good um, line of sight for parents to the children if they're in the gathering place or wherever. Um, There's going to be two playgrounds in there. There's going to be a playground for the two to five-year-olds and then one for the five to 12-year-olds with appropriate equipment. Again, there's all sorts of uh, really, really neat stuff for the kids that play on these days that they're manufacturing that are are accessible, um, that are ADA accessible. And so we hope to create these integrated playgrounds where all the kids can come together and and play. So um, all sorts of beautiful things there. That leads us to the renewed gathering place. 
the renewed gathering place. Um, so what we'll be doing is creating uh, a welcoming entry from the parking structure over there, because so many of you guys come in from that way, right? I mean, some come in from this way, but a lot of people park over there, and it's kind of like walking on our back door, right? There's garbage cans and all this stuff over there. We want to create a nice welcoming entrance there. Uh, we're going to remodel the main bathrooms. Years. I'm an ex-plumber, right? Okay, this is a big deal to me. Like, we're going to remodel those bathrooms. Um, there's going to be an expanded grassy area, shade, seating for picnic and games and other community events. You can kind of get the feel of how open and beautiful that is, a place where we can hang out afterwards and not just be on concrete, but a lot of beautiful greenery and space there. Um, and then, of course, upgraded playgrounds and the perimeter security uh, fencing. Uh, let's go ahead um, and look at the aerial slide. I think, we, yeah. Um, you can get, see some shade structures on there, grassy area. That's an example of what some of the fencing might look like, some gardens. Um, we're going to match that entranceway, which is on this side, over on that side for the new entrance, um, updated pergola, uh, fireplace, all these things outside there. All right. Now, I, I know this is fast. This is a quick flyover. We will get into detail in the ensuing months. This is just a, a high-level vision. Uh, with that, um, we're going to move to the remodeled student center and kitchen. So this is phase 2A. Um, we have a high school right there. You guys notice that? If you're here between 2.30 and 3, Monday through Friday, and you're trying to get out of this parking lot, good luck. Hundreds of students walk through our campus up front, through the gathering place, the backside, and we want to create a space that says you're welcome here. Right? You're welcome here. You belong here. And so there'll be an outdoor student hangout space next to the Amador parking lot outside. Um, there's going to be the, the indoor renewal um, of how that room looks, new aesthetics, new, new flooring, all, all of that stuff. A kitchen remodel, um, which will expand the current kitchen to open into the gathering place, as well as to serve the students on the inside um, when they're here for their, their events as well. So we have a couple example pics. Um, let's go to the next slide. So you can see there would be this patio outside between us and the parking structure. That would be a place where people can hang out and, and our staff can, can meet and greet and get to know um, these students. Um, there'll be a new um, stage. So there's a sample there that the team picked. And then also kind of a, a simple cafe inside by, by the kitchen for um, conversations and, and relationships to be built inside. On the map, you can see all this is taking place in that, that blue highlighted area. Now, um, after that phase, we would do the remodel of the offices um, and the, the front office there, resituate those, put the teams together because together, we're kind of all spread out. Now, what that looks like, that's to be determined. That's, that's coming down, down the road. So that's an overview of what we're hoping to do with the campus over the next couple of years. Now, how do you do something like this? How do you do something like this? Well, it's obvious that, that we do a need to raise the money, and we want to do this debt-free. And this is how God has led us to do everything else in the past with pledges, debt-free, paid off. God has been so faithful. This congregation has been such a generous congregation. So here's what it's going to take. So um, phase one and phase, uh, phase one A and phase one B. Um, so that's the building and the gathering place. Um, the, the price tag on that is 3.3 million. Phase two, the student center and the renewal of everything over there, that will be 1.4, and that brings us to a total cost of 4.7 million. 
I want to tell you, though, um, we already have a million in the bank for this. God has graciously given us through his people over the past year when we haven't even been pushing this or presenting it, a million dollars to launch this. So what a gift we have to launch this. He's so faithful to us. That just blows my mind. So what does this mean for us, next step-wise? Well, first, um, we're going to be doing informational meetings, September 26th through October 17th, where you guys can come. You can sign up after service. You can sign up for those, um, and you'll come to those meetings, and we'll dig into the stuff. You can ask questions. We can work through the details and tell you how it's all all progressing. Um, Those are really helpful meetings. Um, the, The building team, the vision team, they'll be there to help answer questions and present this material. So I would recommend you um, come to one of those. We'll offer a number of them to uh, help you with scheduling. So join an informational meeting coming up. Um, Then we're going to have a commitment Sunday on October 23rd. And that's where we're praying um, as we prepare for that service, um, what we will pledge, what we will give. Maybe you actually give that day or you just pledge that day what you will give or a mixture of the two. And then that leads us to October 31st where we're going to come back um, on Celebration Sunday and um, talk about what God has done, what he has brought forth um, through, through his people. Then um, construction, spring 2022 is the plan. And if these funds come in, which we believe they, they will, we are going to move forward and do construction spring 2022. The completion of the new building will be early 2023. Completion of the gathering place will be a little bit later that year, summer of 2023, and then the phase two construction to be determined. So again, timeline is to raise the funds um, to pledge in, in faith those funds um, this fall and, and winter. Uh, construction next year, completion of phase 1A and 2A by the end of summer 2023. So giving towards the campaign is already open um, through, through our giving portal um, where you can designate funds to the building for family. And so we ask that you would be praying about this, that you would uh, partner uh, with us as uh, we continue to build for family and draw out the potential that is here on the campus that God has so graciously given us. Um, We've come a long way from the chicken coop, haven't we? Um, So there's so much more to talk about there, but um, I want to shift to something else that's wonderful that God is doing, that we are expectant about and looking forward to. a few years ago, uh, God was stirring something in my heart, igniting some thoughts regarding a, a certain subject, and over time, those stirrings, I believe, were confirmed with the, with the pastoral team as we started to talk through some of these things. And then, last elders retreat earlier this year, I uh, presented a vision to the elders, um, and what happened was, was really, really beautiful. There was quickly alignment, um, God moved gently and sweetly and gave us alignment, and not just alignment like, okay, that's nice, but excitement and passion about something else we believe he's calling us to. So in short, we believe that God is calling us to international church planning in the years ahead. This is something that we are currently calling VCC Global Partnerships. In the next few years, we believe VCC has been called to work more closely, intimately with organizations and churches globally in an effort to plant churches across this globe. 
This is a vision for an international church planning effort through global partnerships that we believe God in his grace will, will bless other nations as the gospel spreads, right? as new churches are committed to making and maturing and mobilizing apprentices of Jesus, and, and that we too in this process will learn and grow and God will bless us right? as, as we connect with these, these global churches and see ourselves as more part of a global family, that God will pull us out of just sometimes the narrow view of our local, our own context, and help us to re-examine the gospel in light of what he is doing all across the world. This kind of project will surely change us. I don't see there's a way to do this without it really reorienting us and how we perceive the gospel and our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted all over the world. So, We believe those outside of our local context have so much to teach us about God's church and his kingdom. And we pray this international outreach will impact and touch our church as well as those other communities where churches are established and the gospel is proclaimed and lived out. Now we're not exactly sure um, in all candor and transparency how and what this will look like. We're in the early phases of it, but we wanted to uh, work through it with you As, as a church community. So we're currently working with different organizations and groups right now to determine the best course that the Lord would have us follow. So we're in the early phases. We're planning and praying. Um, we are expectant about what is to come. So we ask you that you be praying about this with us. If you have ideas and thoughts, come speak to us, and we will continue this conversation on into this next year. So building for family here on this soil, church planting on foreign soil. Friends, would you join us in praying for these and asking the Lord how you might jump in and get your hands dirty, so to speak, and serve these projects, and we'll, we'll do this as a family. Does that sound good? Does that make sense? Good. Okay, good. Well, um, the Lord is faithful. He's gracious. Um, and like I said, we can plan, we can strategize, we can do the groundwork, and we've done a ton of that work. Teams have been working nonstop over the past year and beyond to prepare for this kind of thing. And that's wonderful. Um, but we don't want to presume. We want to follow the Lord's leading and realize we are dependent upon him for these projects, right? So we enter into these with great faith um, that his glory will be made known. So um, that said, shall we delight in the word of the Lord together and see why we're doing all of this in the first place? All right, will you do this with me? I think we all need to stand up real quick. Let's stand up. Let's read the word of the Lord together. And then we will open it up piece by piece. All right. This is the book of James, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Here's what he says. My brothers, Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or you sit down on my feet, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the word to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? 
But you have dishonored the poor man, and not the rich, uh, are not the rich ones who oppress you, and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin. And you are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So, speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, I don't usually do this. It's not my normal MO, but my time in this passage is short today. So here is how the sermon is going to go. Favoritism is wicked. Sin. Here's why it's wicked. We're all guilty. What now? Okay? So there you go. Favoritism is wicked. Here's why it's wicked. We're all guilty. What now? How's that for a happy start, huh? <laughs> well, there is such good news that awaits us in this passage, so hang, hang with me. Favoritism seems to be one of humanity's favorite sins. It seems to be in the grain of things. It seems to be in the curve of our bent nature in the DNA of the way we do things. From preferential treatment on the playground to the classroom and the toxicity of the teacher's pet syndrome, to the broken system of victims and VIPs in the corporate world, to the ungodly cliques in the church, to the favored child in a home, and especially diabolical favoritism that tears apart the bonds of family, to the discrimination and biases of identity politics, even to the algorithms that work to influence us. I mean, notably, Amazon, they got in trouble for having a biased search engine algorithm that, used, that was used in displaying their products to bring in more revenue for them. It was biased, and so they got in trouble because it discriminated. So have you, have you ever felt the sting of being on the outside of the in-group? Of not being included? of being treated as less and disrespected because of the violence of favoritism. Favoritism is a form of violence, and I want to talk about why that is. It is violence towards the human soul, and it is violence aimed at God as well. That's a pretty big claim for a sermon as short as this one will be. Favoritism, partiality. Treating someone better than another of equal standing at the expense of the other is a common reality. Treating someone better than another of equal standing at the expense of the other is a common reality. It's no small thing. It's no minor issue. It is, according to James, a sin. It's, it's wicked. It's bent. It's twisted. Like wicker furniture, the wood is bent and twisted. It's, it's bent. It's a distortion of reality. It is actually an enemy of the gospel. See what James says here at the start of chapter 2. Verse 1. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring, and then he goes on and kind of gives this scenario. 
And then he talks about the person judging having evil thoughts. See, as James says it clearly, there should be no favoritism in the church. There should be no favoritism in the people of the Spirit. And this is not a preference of his. This is basic ground rules for gospel reality. Favoritism is not compatible with being an apprentice of Jesus Christ. Now, why does he address this? Well, James is wise, he's talking about wisdom, and he knows how things happen in churches because he knows how things happen in human hearts, even redeemed, saves human hearts that are in process, that still have a shadow side. So he gives what seems like a hypothetical, but honestly, it was probably happening in actuality all over the churches, all over the Mediterranean world that James is writing to in this letter. He says, a gold-fingered man comes into church. That's literally what the Greek says. Crusodactulios, it means gold-fingered because he's got rings all over. I guess younger hip people would say he's got the drip. Is that right? I don't know. I know I, that shouldn't have entered into the sermon. I apologize for it. It's so bad. I'm old. I'm getting old. Um, he's rich. It's obvious. He has gold fingers. And then there's a shabbily dressed guy not wearing the fashions, right? But hand-me-downs. This guy comes into the church. So Mr. High Fashion is given this cush seat up front, nice view, and Mr. Thrift Store, but not like cool thrift store, Portland shabby chic, not like that, but like actual just not in fashion and can't afford clothes. He's told to go stand in the corner. And in that moment, as those seating assignments are judged and meted out, God is affronted, the gospel is distorted, the neighbor is insulted, and Christ is dishonored. James says that the person who makes that call, who acts as the stratifier, the social sorter, outer, takes the place of God as judge and judges poorly. He judges with evil thoughts, with wicked, twisted, bent thoughts. In Greek, it says he receives the face of the rich man. And what that means is he receives the appearance of the rich man. He sees his outer man. He sees the clothes, right, the symbols of his wealth. He receives the appearances and rejects the inner reality. He rejects the humanity. It's a distortion of reality. See, what has happened is that one image bearer of God is counted as more valuable, more worthy, somehow more human, more more worth of respect than another image bearer, all on account of one's socioeconomic status seen in their symbolic wardrobe. Some secondary characteristic has become the prime indicator of a person's worth. It's dehumanizing and it's God-denying. It's not wisdom, right? And the book of James is about wisdom, living in accordance with reality according to God's word. It's not wisdom, it's foolishness. Favoritism is foolishness. So, favoritism, partiality is wicked. It is a sin. Why? Why is it so wicked? Well, we've seen a little bit of that, but let's go deeper. Verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Why is it so wicked? Well, first, because favoritism contradicts the gospel as it denies God's regard for all people. Big deal. 
Favoritism contradicts the gospel as it denies God's regard for all people. It dishonors the poor that God honors. God has given the riches of himself to the poor in spirit, the outcast, the oppressed, and the marginalized. He has given himself to those of means as well, but he's given himself to all who would love and trust him. The Sermon on the Mount begins, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Because God is radically inclusive. God is radically inclusive. He's not radically okay with sin or those things that go against his word, and those things are, are, are many. But he is radically inclusive from every tribe, tongue, and nation, from every socioeconomic class. He is drawing people to him. He's radically inclusive. So if you believe that this person is worth more than that person because of their financial status, because of their fashion, right, because of their power or influence, do you really understand the heart of the good news? Or are you being bent by some worldly lens? And do we really understand then that the God of all glory died to save sinners, which is everyone, no matter how much is in their pocketbook? That the undeserving and unworthy were loved dearly and redeemed because of the work, the blood, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. That there is no earning our reunion with God, that it comes by grace, that the ground is truly level at the foot of the cross. If we are playing favorites, we are not seeing that the ground is truly level at the foot of the cross. The second, uh, I, I would say this, favoritism is a manifestation of the idolatry within one's heart. Favoritism is a manifestation of the idolatry within one's heart. Why is this guy who's meeting out the seats courting this rich person? Why? Because there is some form of distortion about who God is and what we really need in this world that is happening in his heart. See, Money, power, influence, all, all these things, we, we curry favor with those that have these because we are trying to get the good life for ourselves, trying to build protection, trying to build security in our lives, securing the good life for ourselves, not trusting that God is generous and will give us what we need. So we have to find ways to saddle along upside somebody so their benefits spill out over on us and they become a form of God. So you fawn over the rich and favor them because you are not faithfully worshiping God, but some false God, an idol. So the way our favoritism expresses itself, you can reverse engineer that and go back into the heart and find out what kind of idolatry is actually beating within your chest. And actually, this it, favoritism uses people. It becomes very utilitarian. Like They're an idol that we're going to use to get stuff. People are reduced to objects for consumption. That's what idolatry always does. It disconnects us from God and it dehumanizes other people. Third, um, James says, guys, this makes no sense. What you're doing makes no sense. So if you go back to verse uh, 6 and 7, um, he says, look, the, the rich people that um, are, are oppressing you, and James isn't against rich people. We'll get to that. But he's saying the ones that are oppressing you in the culture, the people with, with status, um, the ones that you're trying to curry favor with, they're actually the ones who are oppressing you. 
In James's day, there was land grabs going on to take family land from the poor people, right? And then um, to, to, to tax them heavily, and so the rich were getting richer, and then the, the poor people were being pushed out of their family lands that God had given them. And he's saying, the ones that you're, you're trying to saddle on up next to are actually, they're, they're hurting you. They're, they're harming you. They're pulling stuff away from you. And they're using the power of their wealth to pervert the courts, to purchase favor with the law, to win cases, to levy unjust interest rates. With their influence, they were building unfair systems to feed the rich and bleed the poor. And then he goes on to say, and, and they malign Christ. They're persecuting you. You are this troublesome community of upstarts, this weird little cult called Christians, and they don't like you. So they are giving you a hard time. So he says it just doesn't even make sense. Think about what you're doing. Not that you shouldn't love them. Not that you shouldn't befriend them. But don't try to live off of of their crumbs. And so, it doesn't make sense. By the way, this reminds me, um, have you ever seen a a movie where there's a villain, there's a bad guy, and then there's like the the real greasy, toady character who's just like, yes, boss, yes, boss, right? Doing whatever they say. You know, I, like, it's a trope. It's in so many superhero movies, Disney movies, whatever. They have a sniveling sidekick. And the sidekick grovels and fawns over the cruel bad guy. And you're like, come on, dude, he's using you. Like, this is not going to go well for you in any way, shape, or form. Grow a spine, stop your boot licking. Right? There is this sense that we have this sniveling aspect to our soul. When we don't trust God, we see somebody else with something that we think gives us security, and we go on upside next to him and go, hey, how's it going? We see, we're repulsed by it when we see it in the movie, but often we don't see it in ourselves. All right. There's another reason why favoritism is wicked, and it's a powerful one. It violates the law of love. Look at verses 8 through 11. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, and then he tells us what that is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. Keep it up. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the the law as transgressors. You're guilty. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. In other words, you break some of it. You're breaking all of it because you're not operating in love in the character of God. So what is this royal law? Well, he says it there, but let's read it um, because these are the words of Jesus. What is this royal law that he says um, is violated? when we play favorites. Well, Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 through 40. Jesus is speaking to somebody who's asked him a very important question. Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, Depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus says, hey, you know your Bible? All the stuff that you have memorized since you're a teacher of the law and a scribe, you know all this stuff? Let me summarize it for you. 
Love God and love other people. Love God by loving other people. Love other people by loving God. That is the life you are called to anytime you're breaking any of the laws. It's not just because God is a nitpicker and throws a bunch of laws in the universe. Those are all actually going against loving him and loving other people. It's all connected. And so bottom, bottom line, what Jesus is saying, what James is saying, bottom line, favoritism is a failure. Favoritism is a failure to love. To show favoritism is not an excess of love like we might think. Oh, I love this person more. It's actually, ironically, the inverse. It's not to love some people more than others. It's actually a deficit of love for everyone involved. So if you think you're loving somebody more by playing unhealthy favorites, there's a deficit of love going on, and you're not actually loving that person as they need to be loved because often they are being used and the outsiders not favored are being abused. There's an objectification happening. So James says, to show favoritism is to violate the great commandment. It's not to love our neighbor. And then he goes on and he says, you know, just because you haven't murdered anyone or committed adultery, you know, it doesn't mean that you, you haven't sinned. In other words, uh, any breaking of the law is, is sin. So don't be thinking you haven't broken the law just because you haven't done these really big things. Favoritism is a breaking of the law. In other words, guys, we all need help. We all need help. Now, at this point, uh, I want to do this. I want to step back um, and see that this message is for all of us. Maybe we're sitting here saying, yeah, I get it, to favor you know, the gold finger guy with the luxury car and the designer clothes over the guy who can't even pay his rent. It's just lousy. You shouldn't do that in church. It's obvious. But I think many of us could dismiss the sin of favoritism that we see here as something for other people if we only see it in the realm of economics. Some of us for sure here are guilty of favoritism of the wealthy. Some of us have a money radar. We read a room, we spend our energies sliding on up to those of means, and we need to repent. But there are a number of ways we practice favoritism. For some, favoritism is drawn out not by wealth, but by power. Maybe it's verbal power, maybe it's, it's organizational power. It's institutional or social power. We're magnetized to it and we go to it because we want it. Idol exposed. For others, favoritism is seen when someone of beauty walks into the room and we leave the mere ordinary looking mortals behind because we value the beauty that just graced the room. Or maybe it's treating someone famous better than other people, losing our civility, losing our common sense and graciousness because somebody famous is on the scene. Being around a celebrity brings out favoritism in really weird ways that otherwise might hide. For some of us, it's a favoritism of intellect or credentialism, impartial to IQs and PhDs. I want to talk to that guy. I don't like to talk to her, to him. I want to talk to them, right? We look down on people less educated. Maybe it's favoritism in the family, right? Maybe it's favoritism of one child over another. This is so destructive. Read through Isaac and Jacob, all those stories. This is deeply destructive. It breaks the hearts and deforms the souls of your children as well as damages your own. There's a deficit of love in that family if there is an excess of love, so to speak, or favoritism going to one of the children. And this happens really subtly. And we have a lot of parents in here and a lot of kids. 
This needs to be rooted out, thought about, prayed about. It's deeply destructive. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you have felt the ravages of this since you were a little boy or little girl. And you're still trying to find your place. Maybe it's a favoritism of the poor or oppressed, meaning a favoritism against the rich. Let's flip this. Maybe you've been saying in your heart, yeah, get them. Knock them down a peg. Look at them. Look at all that they have. They don't get it. Could it be that you have a favoritism that doesn't see the humanity of those in a different tax bracket? Might you self-righteously assume the worst of those different than you? Riches, not, riches nor poverty make us human. Being image bearers of God makes us human. And some of us, by God's grace, have means. Some of us have less. Maybe this favoritism is gendered. Maybe you play favorites with men or with women overtly or subtly, giving more worth to one or the other. You do realize that both are made in the image of God. There is an intrinsic equality of dignity and worth in men and women. Ontological equality, if you want to get fancy about it. And there's another form that should be obvious to us, uh, but maybe it hasn't crossed our minds yet this morning, or maybe it's been dominating your thoughts since I said the word favoritism, and you're like, I hope we go there. Are we going to go there? It's a particularly malicious form of favoritism. It's a favoritism that is amplified to a horrific level as it dehumanizes and attacks the dignity of an entire race of image bearers. Racism. Racism is fundamentally antithetical to, of, to apprenticeship to Jesus. To favor one race over another, to see one skin color as any way superior to another is to disregard the doctrine of the Mago Dei, being image bearers. It is to disregard the doctrine of creation. All things are created through Christ Jesus. It is to disregard the gospel. The doctrine of redemption, that God is redeeming and restoring those of every tribe, every tongue, every nation in this world. In Acts 10.34, Peter learns that God shows no partiality on the basis of national or ethnic status. It is a sin to be partial and discriminatory because it falls short of God's character and glory. By the way, let me just say, this isn't in my notes, this is not some political stance I'm taking. This is the word of God. This is the word of God. God has made us in his image, as his image bearers, that he died to redeem. Favoritism is a failure to love. We're all guilty. Not of all of these I've mentioned, but some of them in some way at some point in time, surely we have all failed to love others well. Lord knows I have. <laughs> it's amazing how self-deceived we can be in these matters. And by that, I, I mean me. This past Thursday, I was sitting at Inklings uh, writing this sermon. I forgot my earbuds, which is, oh my goodness, big deal. Uh, I couldn't go into my own little sermon sound, soundtrack world, right? So there I am, right? I'm having a hard time focusing because two tables over from me is a very loud conversation going on. And forgive me, forgive me, but those having the conversation were those who had a very specific style, fashion, particular way of thinking, and particular way of speaking. I was having a hard time focusing. 
And then by God's grace and intervention, he, he did something in my heart, and I realized I wasn't distracted by the noise of their conversation. There were plenty of other loud conversations happening, but it was this one that bugged me. I was being distracted by a deep annoyance, an annoyance that was manifesting in judgment and in evil thoughts, a favoritism of sorts spilled out of me, a form of discrimination was being revealed in me. I was having unmerciful people to these thoughts because of surface reasons. As I was writing the sermon, as I was writing this, so I repented and I prayed, I'm like, oh my gosh, ugly, favoritism, discrimination, all while writing this, the Lord helped me in my failure to love. Favoritism is a failure to love. And I confess, I have favoritisms within me that are not compatible with being an apprentice of Jesus, and those need to die. Romans 2.11, for there is no partiality with God. Job 34, God is a God who shows no partiality to princes, nor regards the rich above the poor, for they all are the work of his hands. There should be no cliques in a church. We're all guilty of failing to love. But James doesn't end us in despair. He takes us in down, and then he, he launches us right into the stratosphere of the good news of Christ. Check this out. Verses 12 and 13. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James tells us to live in accordance with the law of liberty. What is that? It's loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbor as, as ourself because his love has first loved us and empowered us to do so. This is the great law of freedom, the law of liberty. So good. And to not have mercy on others, to show favoritism and not love them as image bearers of God is to not extend the same mercy to them that God has extended to us. To not show mercy to others is a telltale sign that we are not seeing that we are recipients of God's mercy. Now, let me um, tell you this little bit, and then we'll, we'll come to some reflections as a close. James is steeped in the Sermon on the Mount and the teachings of Jesus, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for this is the kingdom of God. Sermon on the Mount and the book of James. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Sermon on the Mount and the book of James. But I think there's a parable that James has beating in his, his heart and running through his mind as he writes this. Because there's a point in, in the Gospels where Peter comes up and asks Jesus, hey, you know, how, how many times should I forgive this, this guy, this brother, this sister? And Jesus goes, a man who owed a king a great debt was called in to pay the debt to that king. He couldn't pay it, and so him and his wife and his kids, they were going to be sold into slavery. And he gets down on his knees and his face, this king, he says, be patient, have mercy on me. I can't pay this. And the king goes, you can't. Here's my mercy. I'm forgiving the debt. And the guy with just jaw dropped gets up, leaves the custody that he was in, and walks out a free person. He sees somebody who owes him a hundred silver coins. He goes up to him and he's violent. He actually grabs him by the collar and he says, give me my money. The guy says he can't pay him the debt. And so he has him thrown into prison. The other servants hear about this, this unmerciful servant's action. And so the king calls the guy back in. And he says, I know what you've done. 
He gives them a severe tongue lashing and sends them off to, let's just say, a not-so-nice fate. In short, how broken, how cruel, and how unloving is it to not extend the love and mercy to others that God has extended to us? How much of a violation of the gospel is it to not see that the mercy that is given to us needs to move through us as a conduit? Favoritism works against that and violates that mercy. When we act in favoritism, we're not living in accordance with the gospel. Favoritism is violence to human beings and it violates the good news of who God is and what he does. And if we are acting in favoritism, we're trading the treasure of the gospel for a meritocracy of our own design which will destroy us. So friends, as we bring this to a close, I want to put these reflections up on the screen. Just let them be. You work with them. You work with the Lord on these. But ask ask how is my heart in this matter of favoritism get personal with this get deeply personal maybe talk this through with with a friend a spouse someone a mentor next ask how is our church culture in this matter of favoritism let it be deeply personal but let it get corporate too we are a family and we need to be healthy And then third, pray Psalm 139, verses 23 through 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We can live in deep self-deception. We need his spotlight to shine on us. Pray this, that he might reveal to us where we're not living in, in the light, okay? Psalm 139, verses 23 through 24. So how's my heart? How's our culture? Pray, search me, lead me in the way everlasting. He will. Heavenly Father, you are good to us. We don't deserve the salvation that you have graciously given, but you have called us out of death, into life, into the light. May we be ambassadors of your mercy and ambassadors of your grace. May we treat people with dignity and respect. Help us to see those people that frustrate us, annoy us, that we just, maybe maybe we don't even see them. Help us to treat them with respect as those who bear your image. Lord, ultimately, we just want to love like you, and we need your spirit to do that through us. So um, we thank you for this word, and now we thank you for this table that we get to come to. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.